Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast in our Investing Explained podcast series. Last week we talked through the ins and outs of ISAs and pensions and this week we're going to get into the meat of what you might invest in by covering all you need to know about investment funds. In recent decades, private investor portfolios have gradually had a growing number of investment funds rather than individual shares. In our second podcast on getting started in investing, we gave a high-level overview of funds, but today we're going to hone in on the nitty-gritty of the different types of funds, how you can compare them and how to build a portfolio. In preparation, I've dug into the numbers and there are over 10,000 funds available for sale in the UK, according to Morningstar. Frankly, a ludicrous amount of choice. With us, I'm delighted to welcome our funds editor, Dave Baxter, back on the podcast, as well as Henry Cobb, Head of Research at Elston Consulting. Henry, Dave, thanks for joining me. Now, Dave, I know you touched on this in our earlier podcast, but I think it's important we go over it again. What is a fund and what are the key differences between active and passive? Hi again, Mary. So a fund will essentially offer you a kind of a basket or a selection of different investments. Um, we'll kind of discuss, I suppose, equities mainly to start off. Um, but yeah, passives will give you a really broad exposure. They'll give you exposure normally to a full market at a very low cost. Um, so to give a couple of examples, you can have passives that will track, say, the FTSE 100 in the UK or the S&P 500 in the US. They're basically giving you um, exposure to that given market and just giving you whatever performance you get from that market, whether it goes up or down. Um, with those well-known, very established markets, you should expect them to be very cheap and not really charge more than, say, 0.1% um, for running the fund. Active is more interesting. So people often talk about the fact that it's more expensive, and it certainly is. But what I think is more interesting to think about is the fact that it's more targeted and less predictable. So effectively, you're paying a fund manager to try and outperform the market in a certain way. Um, often they're looking to sort of grow your assets more, but they can try and do things like defend you against market crashes, that kind of thing. Um, so say talking about the S&P 500 again, a manager will look at the US market and will try and pick the shares that they think will perform better than the market as a whole. So, you know, that's a very compelling idea. Um, and you do get some well-known fund managers who consistently outperform and have generated some huge returns versus the underlying markets over a long period of time. The problem is that most active managers actually fail to consistently outperform. So you need to be really careful, very selective, and don't put all of your money behind one active manager. Yeah, that's very good advice. Henry, do you have any guidance? This podcast is geared towards people um, getting started in investing. Do you have any guidance on when active or passive might be more suitable? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Mary. Um, absolutely. I think the, the, the first thing to bear in mind is that actually the most important thing if you're getting started is to get started. Um, because um, often it's one of the human biases that it's called inertia bias. It's very easy to put things off and say, oh, well, I need to wait till I've got this much amount to get going and I need to wait till I've got a decent amount to invest. But actually the best time to start is, is now and actually get investing. And what's interesting, particularly with funds, is you can actually um, start investing from £25 a month, which I think is pretty much, uh, um, you know, that is the 
affordable to most people, certainly less than a, um, a, a kind of, um, you know, uh, all sorts of other things you could spend that money on. So I think £25 a month is, is an affordable minimum for anyone to get investing. Um, but actually, rather than getting sort of, sort of drawn into at this stage, it's a, oh, would you choose an active fund to get started or a passive fund to get started? Um, I'd actually um, sort, of slightly, sort of reframe it to think actually the most important thing is actually to focus on the, the mix of assets uh, and what asset location you get and whether you want to be, um, what return you'll want, what risk that will take and what time frame you're investing for. So the time frame for someone who's investing age 45, 50 and starting off versus the time frame for a child starting off in their junior ISA, totally different time frame, totally different risk profile, totally different asset location requirements. And so, um, so I think in a way, my message would be, if you're starting off, is start one is, is, is to get started. Um, the second thing is to keep topping up through thick and thin. This is actually a quote from Warren Buffett. He said, keep topping up through thick and thin, especially through the thin. Um, and then actually the next thing is actually focus on the asset location and make sure you've got the right mix of assets, i.e. the higher risk assets like equities, the lower risk assets like bonds, to fit your objectives. And then the final step is then how do you build that portfolio? Which funds do you use for those different asset classes, be they active, be they index tracking, to kind of implement that strategy? So, so that's why we kind of we, we don't think it's so much debate about um, active versus passive per se. It's about being in the right allocation to meet your objectives. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So, if you're just getting started, and you know, you said you can invest for as little as twenty five pounds. If you're just dripping small amounts in, how? I mean, you might just want to invest in one fund or I know you need to think about your asset allocation. What do you think a portfolio might look like for somebody um, dripping in those those small amounts with a long time horizon? Yeah, so so um, I can I can say what I do for my kids. <laughs> so if, if for those I you know if you've got a long term time horizon and you and you want to have equity exposure, um, you know you could buy a global equity tracker fund, um, which as David mentioned could be around ten basis points, could be even less um, for for that amount, and and that, that's your twenty five pounds done. And 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 by by re regularly investing, it's called pound cost averaging. Um, it means that you're not worrying about whether particularly month that particular month is a high month or a low month. You're effectively just averaging in um, at whatever the market's doing. So when markets are, are low because they've had a bit of a, a shakeout, you'll be getting more units for your £25. Uh, if markets are quite toppy, um, they'll be getting fewer units for your £25. But it basically means it, it takes the stress away of thinking, oh dear, you know, should I be topping up or investing now? Is it now the right time or should I wait till next? Because you're just every month, just a bit like a direct debit, you're just averaging in um, a regular amount and you're buying the market. There are also some um, multi-asset uh, portfolios or multi-asset funds that give you a range of asset classes. Um, and those can also be bought as single funds or as ready-made portfolios. And, um, you know, I think if you look what what Elson does, what we do is we actually help wealth managers and financial advisors and not, not your audience. We just help them design those multi-asset portfolios and, and funds. Um, and so I think you know there are firms out there that will do that. Um, and obviously IG's got its smart portfolios, which is one example. You can get other managed portfolios. You can also get multi-asset index funds, which are basically ready-made portfolios of funds available as a single fund. And that is often very popular with starter investors because effectively you can put £25 a month into something that could be 6% equity, 40% bonds, or 70% equity, 30% uh, bonds, or whatever, whatever the mixture of assets is that you want. Yeah, I think that's sensible advice because you don't want to sort of start doubling up on transaction fees if you just get one fund. 
not Does, advice, not, it's not advice, it's guidance. Sorry, guidance, <laughs> guidance. Absolutely right. I do think um, there's a lot of, a lot of, a tr there's a lot of attraction to just getting a global index tracker. Dave, just looking at fund structures, you can either get an open and you can get an unlisted tracker or you can buy an ETF um, if you want to get broad exposure. Do you have any um, guidance on the differences and the pros and cons of each? Yeah, there are a few differences that are worth being aware of. Um, firstly, it's worth thinking about cost. Um, so when it comes to the actual cost that you'll be paying on the funds, the so-called ongoing charges figure, um, as I mentioned earlier, that should be pretty low on the mainstream funds. Um, earlier, I had a look at some of the kind of biggest FTSE 100 trackers, both ETFs and open-ended, and there's not a huge difference. You know, it ranges from 0.07% to 0.09%. So that shouldn't be a game changer. That said, in terms of cost, um, you should look at how the kind of platform you use treats different structures in terms of what it charges because they often will charge differently for shares and with an ETF you are buying shares versus open-ended funds and um, they may have different kind of transaction costs they may have different level of fees they may have different um, caps on how much they will charge you a year so if you have already decided you want something like NECR world exposure S&P 500 FTSE 100 it may then be worth just looking at kind of what the different platforms do and what your favorite platform does in terms of treating those uh, different structures. There are some other kind of technical differences, which quite minor, but perhaps worth um, being aware of. So um, there's pricing, so open-ended funds, when basically um, the price is worked out of what they're holding, um, that, that only happens you know, once a day with open-ended funds, normally midday. That means that if you were, for example, to decide to sell out of your open-ended passive at 3 p.m., you probably won't know kind of what price you've sold out at until midday the next day. And um, by contrast, ETF shares are priced throughout the day while the market is open. So in theory, you could buy and sell at different levels and try and be a bit tactical, although that can be risky, that can perhaps encourage some riskier behavior. And I would just kind of, I guess, echo some of what Henry has said, you know, really what's most important is finding the kind of market exposure you want, the asset allocation you want, maybe looking around to see the most cost-effective way to do that via different platforms, then investing regularly, and hopefully not really worrying too much about that. Thank you. That's a great detailed answer. The platform point in particular is, is can be crucial over a long period of time. And another thing on ETFs, there's been a huge rise in thematic ETFs. Um, you know, you can invest in all sorts of things from clean energy to robotics to cybersecurity and companies that are going to benefit from the aging um, demographics. Henry, what do you think about these thematic ETFs as a building brick for an investment portfolio? Well, I, th I think that's um, I think it's really interesting. I think you use the term building brick, and I think that's that's exactly that's exactly the right term. But I think so. Step one is is, is having that house or having the, if you're building a house, you know, you often have you know foundations and a core, and then you might want some fancy brickwork on the outside to make it a bit more interesting. And I think that the way I see it is that you know you want to have a, a really solid core portfolio, um, be that a managed portfolio or a multi asset index fund that gives you that kind of solid core. 
then you might want this kind of satellite holdings around the edges to explore, exploit, explore things that you may have conviction on or that you may want to be invested in as an investor because effectively you're providing capital to those companies to, to kind of um, grow their businesses. So, so we see them as having a, a very interesting role to play, not just only the thematic ETFs, but also like uh, style factor ETFs as well, which is like different lens of investing. Um, but we see them more as satellite holdings to reflect different um, uh, opportunities around the edges of that kind of core um, you know, single asset or multi-asset strategy. Um, but, but, but just going back to it, if I may just quickly, what, what David was saying on the, the funds versus ETFs thing, because there is one more nuance I'd like to add, which is really important. We really saw it last year in the kind of, um, in, in, with the COVID um, crisis and, the, and trading, um, is that, is that um, you know, funds for an, and an index, they might track the same index and they'll have broadly the same performance because they're tracking the same index, have different costings, different fees on different platforms. It's absolutely right because um, their dealing costs are different for ETFs than they are for funds. And, and it also regular investing into funds is very easy. Regular investing into ETFs is much harder. Um, and you know, there's some costs attached there as well. So, so there are some, I call these format differences, funds and ETFs different format. But there's one really critical difference um, which is that speed of execution. Because um, let's say, um, you know, you, you saw, you, you're worried about COVID coming back, as we, you know, people were worried in March last year, and you want to get risk on the table or get risk off the table very, very quickly. If you're doing that with index funds, with OICs, you know, you hit the sell button, and you've got typically a kind of four-day wait uh, while that order goes sent from the platform to the fund house, and the, they sell down the underlying return the cash to the platform and then it shows up in your account. There's actually quite a long wait. So if you wanted to sort of sell equities and buy gold and you want to do that with index funds, there's actually quite a long wait, like a four day wait uh, to make that switch. Whereas if you're doing with ETFs, because it's a cash market, as in they, they trade instantly and settle instantly, you can literally sell the kind of equity ETF that split second and then immediately it's you've hit sell the money appears in your account because they they know it's match settlement on a t plus two day basis and then you can buy whatever it is you want instead the next second so if you want to be an, sort of actively managing your portfolio and you will want to reflect positions of what's happening in the market then etfs enable you to do, make those very quick changes to your portfolio to react or to preempt what's happening around you in, in the big wide world um, whereas index funds, you don't have that agility, even if you've got the same exposure. But that said, when you're doing for small investors, like you know, children's junior rice or something, um, where you're not worried about that, you're topping up, the index funds more efficient because you don't have to pay the dealing costs. So I just wanted to make that slight point because it, it was a yeah. massive, you think it didn't matter much, but when you need agility because something's happened in the markets, that, that, that difference is, is actually rather extreme. No, that's a very good point. Do you think it's fair to think of an ETF as a more modern wrapper? For a similar product, I'd I'd say so. The way the way I kind of um, try and describe uh, funds or ETFs to um, to, pe to people is is if you imagine a, a hundred coins on a table, that's like the hundred shares in the FTSE 100. All a fund or an ETF is is an envelope. It's just an envelope to put them in because it's easier to carry them around like that. And once you've put them in the envelope, um, the difference between a fund and an ETF is very simple. If you want to, um, if with a fund, if you want to sell it, you've got to take it back to the person who gave you the envelope. They're the only person who'll buy it off you. Um, whereas with it, with with an ETF, you can sell that whole envelope to anyone. You can pass it, pass that whole envelope around to anyone who'll buy it. And so, so you've got much more flexibility in terms of who you can who can buy and sell that envelope 
but all it is it's a it's, it's a collection of, of shares and I, and that's why yeah i'd say it's a more um, modern i'd say it's a more it's a more rapid version um because you can you can buy and sell it through the day if you don't need to do that intraday liquidity you don't need to be able to buy and sell the same day so then it's not as important so we see ETFs being used by private banks by discretionary wealth managers for uh, portfolios um but for for for, for long-term sort of steady investors like you're doing your junior ISO junior SIP or something like that um you know there's there's much less in it because you're not trying to be as proactive in the, the risk management of the portfolio yeah and Dave I just want to you've written some brilliant articles about thematic ETFs um, and some of the challenges or the nuances with them. Can you talk us through maybe some of the some of the things investors need to look out for if they're investing in these products? Yeah, I mean, some people might disagree with me. I might be seen as a bit of a sceptic about thematic ETFs. Um, many people are more, much more excited about them. As you said, there are lots of interesting themes. But I think... Um, as, as we've discussed, if you just buy into a, a main market and hopefully over time it will go up despite the kind of ups and downs and you shouldn't have to worry too much. Um, thematic ETFs, you have to do your homework and keep doing your homework because I suppose you have to be careful about whether what the fund holds is reflecting that theme, whether it's kind of targeting the theme in the way that you want, but also, you know, so on one side to start off some of them can be very concentrated they can have very very small number of holdings because there's perhaps not many holdings that reflect that theme and they can be very volatile um on the other kind of extreme of that spectrum there are some funds that because the industry is not very developed yet will have some holdings that don't actually seem to reflect that theme very well so for example over in the US, um, ARC launched a space exploration ETF um, a few months ago, and that was kind of criticized because it was holding companies like Netflix, which you wouldn't really view as a space exploration play. Um, some other things to be aware of, some criticisms are that, you know, some people worry that thematic funds, by the time they're up and running, they are kind of belatedly jumping onto a bandwagon. So you may basically be investing at the kind of highest moment of hype and therefore the kind of you know the, the value of those assets will kind of fall over time so i suppose if you're going to go for a thematic etf then you need to um really believe in that kind of theme in the long term you know you've had for example a very popular clean energy etf that made huge returns last year and then has had a much kind of bumpier ride this year due to due to various issues so yeah you just have to kind of do your homework much more than with a uh, a FTSE 100 tracker. Yeah, that's that's very right. I think I'm right in thinking that they had to change the index because that fund attracted so much money. And it is it interesting is. with these thematic ETFs. It's almost as they get more nuanced, maybe the the line between active and passive can become a bit more blurred. Um, but we'll move on to active funds now. And similar, like you can have um, ETFs and and normal funds, it's the same for active funds. You can choose between an open-ended fund or an investment trust, um, as we mentioned briefly in, in the previous podcast. Henry, can you give us a, just a bit more detail on how um, an open-ended unlisted fund, an open-ended fund and an investment trust differ and sort of the pros and cons of each? Okay, um, yeah, so, so um, I, I, well, it's a kind of, 
pretty fun geek joke, but my, my in my view, investment trusts are the original exchange traded instruments. So, um, so you know, I'd, uh, if you're going to say oh, we're developing this new um, product and it's actually exchange traded instrument with the ability to lever and it's an, an active, an actively managed exchange traded a product that's um, that with the ability to deploy gearing. Uh, people go, that sounds radical. You know, it's set up in 1863. It's a, it's an investment trust. So um, it was, and and I think the, so they, they are very very democratic. And there's wonderful. The reason they're set up was to democratize capitalism and actually get people make the um, make uh, investing available to to anyone who wanted to to, to participate. And um, you know, I always think it would be a great great idea for godparents to give their godchildren Christmas rather than 20 pounds of sort of uh, you know sort of plastic toys that's going to disintegrate, but a, a, a unit in something like one of, one of the investment trusts managed by Rothschild or something, that, that'd be, that's a much better Christmas present. So I think the, the, main, the main difference are an OIC is daily traded. It's a fun wrapper. It's typically single asset class. It's typically reflecting asset or multi-asset in nature. And it can, it can only really, it, it can't borrow and it has to distribute all its income. Um, and uh, so, so that's kind of, it can borrow a bit, but not very much. It can borrow up to 10% of NAV. Um, and so it's much typically used as a single asset building block to, to use your words. Um, it's most importantly is daily dealing. So it has to accept daily dealing typically. So, so that, you know, if you want to subscribe or redeem on a particular day that they're, that's, that's available to you. Um, and, and also the number of units can increase, um, uh, you know, as, as more and more people put money in. With an investment trust, and that's why it's called open-ended because it's open-ended in terms of how many units can have. Um, an investment trust is, is is closed form, so effectively that means there's a certain number of units. If they issue more units, it's more like a stock market offering. Um, and as a result, there's a supply-demand dynamic around the investment trust, which means that the investment trust share price can trade at a premium or discount to its net asset value. Um, and that can be quite interesting because if you think, well, the net asset value of that particular investment trust is this, but the, it's currently sharing it's trading at a discount, you can actually you can buy that. And it hopes to benefit as the discount narrows, and also as the, the value goes up based on the underlying NAV. So there's a, that there's a whole issue around premium discount with investment trusts. But actually, I think where investment trusts really uh, make sense is they're they're much better for specialist exposures where there's no daily liquidity requirements. So you know, if I was to buy, you know, and we saw this with the property market. So if you're buying a property OIC, um, they've got to offer daily dealing, and yet you can't sort of uh, just if they, if they got a big redemption from a property or you can't go and sell a corner of a supermarket, they have to either sell the whole supermarket or part of the supermarket they, or not at all kind of thing. So that daily dealing is a bit of a problem with property funds. And that's why they're looking at alternative structures for those kind of uh, illiquid assets. Having an illiquid asset class in a daily liquid fund is a bit of a mismatch and a bit of a problem. Whereas for investment trusts, there isn't that requirement because they're not promising to create units every day. And therefore, if you want to hold illiquid specialist assets, be it, um, you know, real assets, timber, um, uh, alternative assets, um, leasing, leasing projects, etc. Investment trusts are much more interesting. We've had carbon. Someone's, I think, launching a new carbon uh, credit investment trust. They are much more suited to illiquid specialist, um, more nuanced exposures where there isn't a daily dealing requirement. Um, and equally, they're interesting as a as an investment strategy, almost like as a as a long term. 
um, wealth strategy. So you've got trusts like Rothschild Capital Partners or uh, City, where there's kind of progressive dividend payout because in years when um, you know there's fewer dividends being paid in from the underlying holdings, they can actually use their balance sheet to pay out a dividend and make sure that there's always a, a robust dividend policy in place. So, so you know, I like investment trusts not to buy single asset class exposures, but more to have um, in the alternative space or as or as a ready-made portfolio. Um, you know, like we discussed earlier, um, in in our world, we're dealing with financial advisors. They're, they're, the the fact that exchange traded can make them harder to um, hold inside models, particularly because of the premium discount factor. You've also got to think about liquidity because some investment trusts, different investment trusts, have different liquidity profiles. Um, but broadly speaking, um, yeah, that would be the separation. Is for single asset class building blocks, we'd be mainly using OICs for the mainstream markets for equities, bonds, etc., alternatives. But for for, for specialist exposures that's where investment trust might have a, a, a broader role to play or as a, or, or as a ready-made portfolio in some instances but it, there is a that additional complexity of the liquidity and additional complexity of the premium discount to nav yeah that's great thank you that's a really comprehensive answer and it's definitely um i mean it's sort of the only way to get access to a lot of these alternatives but lots of people if they're starting you sort of want a global fund perhaps and there um lots of the investment Trusts do trade at discounts. Some trade at small premiums. But if you if you just wanted to get a global active fund, would you have, um, you know, is it obvious whether an open ended or investment trust might be a better option? I I I'll be honest. For single asset classes, I prefer the open ended format because I I want to know how I don't I don't want to play the the premium discount game, and I want to know um I want to know how it's performing. I want to under, and without that additional grey area of, of um, you know, are we looking at share price performance or NAV performance? And so um, for single asset class exposures, my preference is definitely for OICs. Um, for uh, specialist exposures, um, investment trusts. But again, that's that's more as a, a, port, a small part of the portfolio rather than the, 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 the main story. Dave, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, when it comes to equities, you know, open-ended funds are perhaps just simpler which might actually be appealing if you're a kind of beginner investor you know you don't have to think about henry mentions what's called gearing where investment trusts can borrow money to kind of put more money behind their favorite assets that can like amplify their positive and negative returns and then of course investment trusts can be a bit more volatile just because they're they're shares and you know shares get kind of whipped around by by market movements um but I personally, I don't feel like there's a kind of clear winner when it comes to things like equities. You know, you have some great funds and in kind of both camps, really. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. If there was a clear winner, we'd all be in them. I did do some analysis on this um, in November, and it does look like investment trusts have tended to outperform their open-ended counterparts um, over over long periods of time. But as we know, there are lots of complexities. And Dave, when building a portfolio, you have to think about diversification in lots of different ways. Geographical is an obvious one, and we've got a um, an upcoming podcast dedicated to investing overseas. But you also have to think about investment style, um, which is known as value versus growth, and quality has been entering the fray. Please, can you explain... Um, what uh, briefly what what these mean and how you might think about it in terms of fund manager style and portfolio construction yeah sure so the the more i suppose the more time you kind of think about investing the more you're going to hear certain 
common jargon and certain debates. And one of the debates, as you mentioned, is growth versus value, which has been raging for a very long time. So very simplistically speaking, kind of the so-called growth and quality stocks should have their own kind of fundamental drivers of returns. So there should be kind of reasons for optimism based on what's going on in the business. So some common examples are, for example, the big, the big tech stocks in the US, whereas value stocks um, tend to be called that way because they are, they are seen as being kind of out of favor and perhaps their share price is not reflecting the intrinsic value of the business. But what's important to know about value is also it tends to be in more kind of economically sensitive areas. So things like banks, things like energy stocks, um, house builders. So you are much more reliant on kind of, you know, the economy um, growing and things looking very uh, positive. Um, you know, often in the last decade, value has had a pretty rough run and they've had some moments of kind of hope. Um, so notably in November last year, you had the Pfizer vaccine breakthrough and then so-called value assets did very well for a few months, but then we've seen the gap close between growth and um, value. I think what's perhaps important um, in terms of funds and investing is, as you mentioned, to have some kind of diversification. So some fund managers will be renowned kind of value investors. Some are very well known for more their quality and growth focus. And equally, Henry briefly mentioned it earlier, you do have so-called kind of um, style tilt ETFs, um, so value tilt and growth tilt. Um, but there, there are just lots of things to monitor in terms of kind of looking at what they hold. Is that the way you want to express kind of value or growth? And with the ETFs, there are certain rules that sometimes perhaps hold you back from being as deep value as you'd like. So for example, some of the value ETFs um, are they can't really deviate from the main market in terms of their weightings to different sectors. So last year when value style took off, they only had limited exposures to areas like financials. So that may have kind of limited their gains. Um, so yeah, it's just another kind of bit of homework to do if you're looking at those kind of funds. Yeah, you're right. You want to sort of pick what works for you. And another thing, um, which I guess is also a, a style to an extent, is a lot of funds focus specifically on small cap companies. Henry, what, what are the key characteristic differences between small cap funds and large cap funds? And how might you want to think about owning both or picking between the two? Yes, I, I think obviously this is this is how um, funds are constructed and the, the universe of stocks that go inside them. And, you know, there's a whole body of evidence around all these different um style factors of their gold so value quality um, growth you've talked about small cap these also so-called factors so different ways of looking at things that are in a non-geographical way but in terms of what's inside them uh, and small cap which is like a size factor is um, very interesting and there's lots of academic studies around the ability for small cap companies to deliver kind of outperformance but you've got to be kind of highly um you know cautious or not so cautious highly aware of, of the manager and their track record the ability to um, select stocks but and also be highly sensitive to liquidity because um small caps can be uh, fantastic exciting but if it's a, a big fund playing in a small market um and ends up um that actually uh it ends up owning a, a good chunk of these companies and actually you know, they are the market for those companies then that can raise liquidity concerns so so sm a small cap is very interesting but one's got to be highly attuned to um, the underlying liquidity. 
Um, and interestingly, you know, small cap is not purely an active domain. There are also small cap indices, and therefore funds that track those small cap indices. Um, but I think the the interesting, uh, the reason it's such an interesting area, if you think about the large cap markets, then the mainstream indices, the FTSE 100s, the S&P 500s, the world equities, you know, they're, they're such efficient markets that it, it gets very hard, as David alluded to earlier, for active managers to outperform those indices because it's a, it's it's almost like a, a zero-sum game. And there's a there's a study published regularly called the Spiva study that looks at the success of uh, active managers in, in beating particular index. Um, and when you're looking at very efficient markets like the S&P 500, like the FTSE 100, like world equities, it's it's it get, it's really hard for an active manager to persistently beat that index over time, and and the numbers are astonishing. We're talking about over ten years, maybe only one in ten managers manage to beat the index um, for the for U.S. equities over ten years, uh, and about six uh, four out of ten in the in the U.K. But with inefficient markets where there's much more noise, there's much more scope for um, you know research, there's much more scope for taking a view. Um, so inefficient markets would include small caps. There is much more um, scope. To, for active management to add value. And that's why it's an interesting component within a portfolio. Yeah. And um, Dave, do you have any guidance on how an investor can check that a fund manager is doing their job properly? Yeah, it's um, it's not easy. So um, I suppose there are many ways to kind of look at this. I mean, if we're talk, talking about style again, um, I suppose one interesting thing to look at is how a fund performs in different environments. So if you're, if you're say a value manager and you, you're playing kind of, you know, an uptick in the economy or playing kind of out of favor businesses coming back, then at a time like, you know, rough a year and a bit ago when those assets kind of really came back, you really want that manager to be kind of participating in that uptick. Um, also, I guess you kind of, you want to be monitoring their kind of, generally speaking, again, monitoring kind of a manager's commentaries and what they're holding, and how often they're changing the portfolio. You know, many active managers, particularly some of the better known ones, talk about kind of buy and hold and just buying good companies, not doing much. You want to kind of make sure that they don't seem to be getting too erratic. So sometimes when fund managers run into trouble, you'll see kind of lots and lots of overhaul of the portfolio. And if that's not their remit, then perhaps that's a bit of a bit of a red flag. Um, and yeah, generally back to performance, you just want them to be performing how you would expect them to in a given environment. So one very well-known active manager is Nick Train. So he kind of focuses on kind of heritage businesses, strong brands, you know, consumer goods names like Unilever, Diageo. And his funds have been having a really difficult time this year because they don't have exposure to things like tech or things like value. But in a way, you might actually be expecting them to be underperforming in this kind of environment. So you just need to be checking that the manager is doing what you expect them to be doing. And you know, ask yourself, why did I buy this fund? Is the fund behaving in the way I would expect right now? Yeah, I think that's great advice because um, no fund outperforms all the time. So you know, it's probably not time to, to sack a fund manager just because they've outperformed for six months. But, but in a way, this, this comes back to this whole kind of category era debate in a way of, of, of how to build portfolios, because I, I feel and everything, I'd concur with everything that David's just said. And, and then actually, you know, what a lot of the fund research firms do is they try and, and, the, and, the, and the wealth managers and financial advisors spend a lot of time 
quantifying that research, looking at persistency of alpha, looking at how they fared in different, you know, spotting kind of disconnects or changes in patterns. And we, you know, with, with Woodford, there was suddenly a, a disconnect in how the accepted performance was versus you know what it should be, and suddenly started, and that was because suddenly there was a huge number of unlisted or illiquid holdings in there that, that didn't really go in tandem with a stated style, even though they were consistent with the objectives of the fund. So I think those kind of disconnects are part, you know, important spot, but it's it's huge. It's really hard work. It's really hard to do work to do that amount of research that um, David just mentioned, and you know there are firms that will do that research, and obviously platforms have their buy lists and all that kind of stuff, which is trying to package that research for investors but i think you know if i was to kind of come down on one way or the other i'd, I'd say well in a way i feel it's like focusing on the, the wrong problem because it's a bit like if you're putting together a meal if you're putting together a, a, a meal um like spaghetti bolognese you're gonna you're gonna buy some spaghetti you're gonna buy some mincemeat you're gonna buy some tin tomatoes i'm not an expert cook but i'm going with it but a couple of onions don't know what else goes in there but um, the whole act of the, the, the real focus for investors is, is the ratio of how much spaghetti and how much bolognese. That is the most important thing. Do you want to be 90% spaghetti, 10% bolognese, or 90% bolognese and 10% spaghetti? That's going to impact how your friends enjoy their meal when you cook that supper. To get into the micro detail of, shall I buy the Neapolitana tins at one pound a go for those tin tomatoes, or the Tesco's Values tins at 20p a tin for the tomatoes? which just said that was a loop inside the source, it's neither here nor there. So then, so effectively the kind of active management research debate is basically looking at the Neapolitana tin, looking at the ingredients, wondering where those tomatoes got picked from, wondering who's packaged them, wondering how long they've been in the tin for, and wondering whether they'll be any nicer than the ones in the Tesco value tin. That's, that's active fund research in a nutshell, which is then in a way I'd say it's fascinating and interesting and great for, excuse me, journalism and great for the fund houses, but actually, it misses the bigger point, which is how much spaghetti and how much bolognese. The tins of tomato are purely incidental. And then you've got a choice if you would pay a pound a tin or 20p a tin, um, your friends won't really notice. So I, I'm, I'm on the, I, I think the, the debate and the effort and the research should be about getting the asset allocation right. And that it has far more material impact and outcomes in terms of the overall asset allocation and your overall portfolio risk and return than um, whether they are Neapolitana tins of tomatoes or Tesco value. With, with apologies to any brands mentioned. And please hope to jump onto Twitter. I think that's a wonderful metaphor to end it with. I'm sure we could carry on talking about this for hours, but sadly we're out of time. Um, thank you very much, Henry and Dave, for coming on.